Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Eric Wishhouse, Squibb Professor in Molecular Biology at Princeton University, talks with Bonnie Bassler, his colleague at Princeton and the editor of the Annual Review of Genetics, about his life and career. Dr. Wishhouse describes his beginnings as a young boy in Alabama and recounts how his interest in science was sparked by a science camp in Kansas funded by the National Science Foundation when he was a teenager. After a bachelor's degree at Notre Dame, Dr. Wishhouse was admitted to graduate school at Yale University, where he studied under the direction of Swiss developmental biologist Walter Gehring. Dr. Gehring eventually returned to his home country, taking his student with him. In Basel, Dr. Wishhouse met Christian Nusslein Volhard, or Yanni as he calls her, and together they began the work that defined their careers. Their research resulted in the identification of 139 genes that determined the development of fruit fly embryos, a finding that earned them the 1995 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, jointly with Edward B. Lewis. Hi, my name is Bonnie Bassler. I am a professor in the Department of Molecular Biology at Princeton, and I'm a Howard Hughes Institute investigator, and I also have the delight and the privilege of being colleagues with my friend Eric Wieschaus, who is going to talk to us today about his life in science. Yes. Right. So I'll start with an easy one. Um, Eric, just tell us first just where you grew up and how you ended up going to college and becoming a scientist. Oh, gosh. I, I grew up in Alabama, in Birmingham. Uh, this was in the 50s and the 60s. I, my Folks aren't scientists. I, um, it's hard to say. I, I wanted to, I think I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be something. I wanted to leave Alabama, I guess. And, uh, and when I was a junior, one of the, the nuns in the high school that I was in told me about a science camp. Uh, it was run by the NSF in Kansas, in Lawrence, Kansas. Got to leave Alabama. And I left. I, I, I took a train. Actually, they had trains. You could take a train from Birmingham, Alabama, to Kansas City in a bus to Lawrence, Kansas. And I was like 15, 16 years old and old and never really been away from home. And there I was at Kansas in a laboratory doing science. And I thought, wow, this is what I want to do for my whole life. This is it. And so did you know you were going to go to college before that? Did you at least think that? Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I definitely figured I wanted to go to college. I didn't, um, I didn't, th- back, I didn't think very, very seriously about, like, where you go to co- I think nowadays, if you're a junior in high school and you hadn't thought about college or where you're going to go, you're, someone, guidance counselor probably needs mm-hmm. to talk to you or something. Yeah. But back then, at least... And in, in, in my high school in Birmingham, people didn't really do that that mm-hmm. much. And so I didn't really think about stuff far in the future. But then you went to college. Where did you go to college? I, so I, I went to Notre Dame. Uh, this was back in the days when uh, it was even more football-focused and even more male. It was totally male. There was only males. It was just like males everywhere. Um, and... Uh, it was four years of uh, the Notre Dame 
the environment that was good for me. I I uh, I I think the seminal thing for me there. I, I by that time I'd figured I wanted to be a scientist, but I didn't know what kind of scientist. I didn't know very much about science, but I I needed money and I got a job. I got a job in a a fly lab. I got a job making fly food and washing fly bottles on the weekend. And I, um, so I'd learned a lot there. I learned how labs work. I learned that people, that labs were like small little organizations and everybody in the lab knew each other and that was, it wasn't impersonal and most of the scientists didn't wear lab coats all the time. They mm-hmm. just kind of talked and I, I thought that was what I, I could I could fit in there. I could do that, and well, I could do being a scientist. I wasn't sure that I ever wanted to see another fly right. again, but I knew that ah, I could hang around labs for the rest of my life and be happy. So that's a good start. And so then, what's the transition from washing the fly bottles to being a fly geneticist? How'd okay. that metamorphose? Right. Huh? Yeah, how'd you do that? All right, so that's hard. I think um, so. I did. I finished, I did okay as an undergraduate. I decided to go to graduate school. I, um, this was also during the, the Vietnam War, and I, um, I had applied to, I was accepted to go to graduate school in, in New Haven at, at Yale. I wasn't sure that because of my draft status and things like that, I was going to be able to go. I uh, was also at the time very religious. I thought I was religious. I thought I was opposed to the war because of religious reasons. I, um, I applied for conscientious objector status. They never had one in my, in, in my draft board in Birmingham. So it was like, it was a big deal for them. They were really, they were really excited to have somebody apply for this. <laughs> it's like the coolest thing that happened to them. You know, no medical deferments. It was like some, some crazy idealist. But they decided they couldn't give it to me because it was only given for religious reasons. They d- I didn't get the, didn't get the cla- uh, classification. But the, getting back to what happened, my, the man that I'd wa- washed um, bot- fly bottles for, Harvey Bender, who was a vermilion, uh, the geneticist who worked in the vermilion locus, knew one person at Yale, and he wrote to him and said, you have to take care of this boy. He's, he's really okay. And um, I arrived at Yale with the idea that I never wanted to see another fly. I wanted to work on embryos. I wanted to do something really exciting. And Don Polson, who was a professor at Yale, in, took me under his wing and took me... At, they didn't do rotations back then, so I, I got sucked into another fly lab. And that was a good fly lab in the sense that they... Polson in the 1930s did something that... Um, Nobody had done. He had actually described embryonic development in flies. He had arrived as a graduate student in Caltech, wanting to do biochemistry, and he met H. Sturdivant. Sturdivant had said, "Well, yeah, we can do this biochemistry sometime on development, but what you really we need to do, figure out, we're going to use these genes have something to do with the way embryos develop." And so, what Polson did, and uh, spectacular, was to describe all of fly embryology. When I arrived at Yale, I don't think I knew that flies had embryos. Mm-hmm. I don't think... I, I, I wanted to work on embryos. That was the exciting thing. I knew, I'd seen frog embryos, and I thought, I wanted to work on frogs. So I could work on chickens, too. That would be okay. I didn't want to work on flies because you only did genetics and looked at bristles. And what I learned from Polson was that flies had embryos. 
And if you look at them, they do all the same spectacular mm -hmm. things that real embryos do. I mean, frog embryos yeah. do, or chicken embryos, yeah. So I became, and Poulsen didn't want a graduate student, though. He was 65. He was wanting to get out, I think. And, and I was a little bit too loud and a little bit too... And hmm. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, my memory of Poulsen after he took me in was this constantly retreating into his office. And I would have these <laughs> questions. <laughs> and I, I read this paper, and it was like this, and it says here about these cooperphilic cells of the mint. And Poulsen would just kind of... And, and then he arranged... I wanted to learn how to do transplant imaginal discs. And he said he... And then he had this, at one point, he said... Oh, no, but this was a Swiss technique, and he didn't know this was. I mean, he but he could arrange for me to move over temporarily into this the lab of a new assistant professor, Walter Gehring, uh, who had just joined the medical school, who was Swiss and knew how to do those things. And I said, "Oh, oh okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go over." And so I went over, and effectively switched labs at mm -hmm. that point. So, in a certain sense, I was Don Polson's last graduate student. And Walter Gehring's first graduate student. simultaneously. Yeah, and <laughs> uh -huh. uh, it, was, it was great. Walter's lab was just starting. There was a technician, and there was me. And for the first year before his lab got to be very big, he and I would work next to each, uh, sit next to each other, and like transplant discs mm -hmm. or do do things like that. Um, and then after a year and a half, he decided that New Haven was nice, but Switzerland that he was Swiss and he wanted to go back to Switzerland he had an offer to go to Basel and so he decided to go back to Basel and asked me if I wanted to go with him and I s I'd never been out of the United States before and I said yeah sure and so um, I went to Europe so how did you cope with being in Europe oh, I was like 21 yeah pretty easily yeah pretty <laughs> easily yeah. and so you know there I was like I'd never I had had Latin before. I did one year of German, I think. I could, I don't know how to ask for a cup of coffee, but there I was in Europe. And so, like, I could, like, in Basel's on the border of France, and you could talk to people in French, and you could talk to them in, in German, and I learned, like, stuff. I learned, mm -hmm. I learned all of Swiss history and everything that you could learn that, like, it was that was me. That was like mm -hmm. I became. I became very, very sophisticated. Yeah, we can that. tell it's lasted your whole <laughs> life. Yeah, okay. Well, you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like a good adventure. And so now take us, Eric. So now you're in Switzerland, right? And this is where you do yeah. start thinking about doing these screens, right? Yeah. Or is that well, later? I I had started my uh, my graduate. Uh, the experiments I was doing with Walter were weird. Well, but they were they they were just they. The idea was to, not genetic, but just to take fly embryos and transplant or take single cells out and mix them, grind up the embryos and mix them with other cells and follow what the cells do and then label cells in, in vivo in situ and living embryos using these genetic techniques and try to follow what normal cells did versus... And um, in the meantime, what had happened, though Walter had kind of abandoned those approaches and had uh, this was in the early 70s, it was clear that molecular biology was going to happen, and he, when he left New Haven and went to Basel, he, I think he did that with the vision that he wanted his mm -hmm. laboratory to be the center of molecular biology, or particularly molecular biology for flies. So he only took postdocs who had right. skills in molecular biology, 
and then I was somewhere in the back of some little some little cutting up embryos and doing stuff like that. And he he had a lot of great postdocs. And then Christian Nussein Volhard applied to his lab to do postdoctoral work. Uh, she had worked on uh, E. coli, and uh, she actually isolated the uh, the what is it the lac repressor binding site. Uh, that she isolated, that she chopped, she mm-hmm. digested away. They couldn't do anything with the DNA. They couldn't even sequence it for a couple of years. But she had that, so she was clearly a molecular biologist. Molecular biologist, and she was just the kind of person Walter wanted. And so uh, Yanni arrived, uh, and but Yanni arrived because she wanted to work with embryos. And I think the real secret of our friendship was that I was the only person who wasn't grinding up flies mm-hmm. and trying to get DNA. I was cutting up embryos and looking at them and uh, looking at fly wings and and all of those the very developmental questions. And so we established a very tight bond and began then to talk about what would be the cool things to do. Okay, so that's the thing that I want to challenge. So how did you guys know that to do that screen was what you just said, the cool thing to do? Come on, you're like 24 years old or whatever you guys yeah. are. Right, you're in the middle of this big lab that's doing something else. Yeah, we. I think, on the one hand, because we were less interested in what was popular or current, or what people, everyone said had to be done in science, we were interested in embryos, and that was clearly true for me. That was clearly true for her, and we were both happy to spend time looking at embryos or trying to figure out how to photograph them or trying to figure out different interesting genetic tools or ways of looking at at things or how... I think we were... because we were visually oriented and we saw things happening in embryos, we were really oriented broadly towards questions, things that we wanted to know, how do things happen. Mm -hmm rather than how do you solve this latest thing of getting some restriction enzyme to be able to cut DNA or, or some fundamental, some molecular strategy or some generalized question that almost, that all molecular biology right, labs we're working right. with. And so we, were, I think we're very conscious of, of the big, of the questions that we wanted to ask. And, and we were doing these on flies and so genetics was an obvious oper- uh, an, an obvious tool, an obvious powerful tool. I think that we didn't necessarily see the experiments in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, if I look back at that time, I think in a certain sense, Yanni had a more exact vision of what she wanted, or how she thought things would work, and how she thought mutagenesis would work. Whereas I'm, in a lot of things that I do, I tend to be more opportunistic. And so if I think something's going to work and something's going to be cool, I'm going to throw myself Mm -hmm. into it totally, and I will usually get it to work, usually try hard to get it to work, whereas, and I'll try to even under suboptimal conditions to get it to work. Whereas... I think her vision as a scientist, one of her really, really strong qualities is that 
this vision drives her to a certain ideal way of doing an experiment. And so she will, rather than charge forward in suboptimal conditions, she really believes that there is a good mm-hmm. way of doing it. So there's that. I think from the f- scientific standpoint, she believed in genetics in a way more than I did. She believed that genes would actually do things, right. meaning that the information molecule in an embryo that could be, we were interested in gradients, that was graded. She believed that this molecule would be a, a gene product, a protein. She actually believed that. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, and this is an old controversy, so everybody in developmental biologists believed in gradients. The general school, I think, was that gradients were things, and I was in this school, I think, I believed this, the gradients were things which were very mysterious, or if they were, if they, they existed, but they were probably small molecules. Mm-hmm. And so my sense of what a gradient was going to be in, a, in an embryo was really more like what galactose is mm-hmm. to E. coli, that it's a molecule that's distributed, and when you do genetics, what you're going to learn about is how this molecule's used what are the receptors, what, you know, how you, you know, Mm -hmm. the process of using that information. But the real information molecules, I thought, would be sodium chloride or something that would, or oxygen gradients, that's actually many people, but something that that would be still steps removed. Right, that's indirect from the the So she had this vision, and I remember we used to argue about it all the time, because even when she had isolated the, the first maternal effect mutant that was, with an interesting phenotype, was dorsal and had a graded phenotype. She immediately interpreted that as a molecule yeah. that was graded. Where I said, "Ah, you've got a system." You've got the regulator of the gra- yeah, yeah, the grading you've system. Yeah. You've hit this. You've hit this. Got yeah. the handle on this. Yeah. But this molecule is never going to be graded. Now, dorsal is graded as a protein. Yeah, yeah. and that was this That's incredible. Cool. This the sense that. I don't think any of, any of us really anticipated it, at some level how simple things well, were. And I think it's so hard for us to think back at that, the place where you don't have the knowledge that we've, right, yeah. to, tr- to try to, like, put ourselves in the middle of that argument because we understand it now. Yeah. But, but I want to wait, but hang on. So you're in Basel, and this is called the Heidelberg screen. Ah. So, <laughs> so, so actually, Yanni and I finished our thesis about... A gra- graduate student thesis about four months from each other, and she started her postdoctoral work about four months before I left Basel to go to Zurich to do uh, to do my postdoctoral work in, in, in Zurich. But Basel and Zurich about an hour apart, and because I was one of the things I was doing had been doing in Basel was to transplant cells from embryos and try to make genetic mosaics, and they had a setup to do that in Basel, and nobody was really using it that much, and uh, we were, I was doing some experiments with some people there using that setup, and they didn't have something like that in Zurich, so on the weekends, I would still come back uh-huh. and use their use the, the Basel setup. So now tell us exactly, what is the screen, what is the question, what okay. did you do, and then what did you get? Okay, I can tell you what we wanted to do. No, and, yeah, okay, no. that's and fine. Then, what was your question, and then what you got, yeah. What we okay, got. So, so here comes well, the opportunism part. Right, yeah. this is, <laughs> oh God, don't you know? It's, we, I think our, our sense was, because Johnny had done this, this preliminary screen in Basel. Actually, we both had mutants. I had a mutant called K10, 
in Basel that affected oogenesis in a patterning way. She had um, a mutant called dorsal. And so we knew that there were genes out there that were maternally active that would control the way embryos develop. So you have to tell us what maternally active means. Okay, but maternally, so the idea is that embryos um, get the gene products they get from two sources. Uh, they obviously have their own DNA and they can transcribe and translate protein, uh, genes. But that since the embryo develops in an egg that is large and initially supplies not only just nutrients but all kinds of gene products that the embryo needs, the, that the possibility existed, everybody believed that this was true, that among the thousands and thousands of proteins and factors that were in the egg would be some that would be really specific for embryos and be essential for normal embryonic development, maybe to interpret gradients or maybe to be the gradient. Mm -hmm. in, in the, the, but we knew that there had to be some special things that maybe were never used ever again, but that the mother put in the mm -hmm. egg. And so, in theory, if you were to knock out those genes, you would raise homozygous mutant individuals, but they themselves would develop normally because they came from heterozygous mothers. And their moms put something good put in something there. Good. Yeah. But when they grew up, if they were females and tried to make eggs, their eggs would miss this specific thing, mm -hmm. be mutant, and would um, develop abnormally. So they would be, fe these mutations uh, would cause, uh, cause uh, female sterility or would cause maternal effects, meaning a right. maternal yep. effect on the embryo. So we knew that was that had to exist. We didn't know how many of these genes there were, but we um, thought that, although no one had ever really, um, that if they existed, you, you could do a mutagenesis experiment and identify them. Now, people had looked for mutants in this class. The screens were small. What seemed to us is that since most genes that the mother put in were probably boring. To get to the really interesting ones, you'd have to do, mm -hmm. you'd have to do big enough screens that you know you'd hit every gene yes. once. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was the idea. We actually wrote this. We wrote this plan up. I still have it somewhere. About two a year and a half before we both, by not quite by chance, ended up in Heidelberg. We wanted to do the maternal effect screens. Now in flies, flies are diploid. You. As a bacterial person, I know. We don't deal with that, but I've heard of it, that. yes. But one of the, 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 the features of multicellular organisms, most of them are diploid. Most genes, when you knock them out, they are sufficient in a single copy. Mm -hmm. So that means, on the one hand, that um, you knock out genes, and you can always maintain any knockout as a heterozygous stock, so mm -hmm. that's really advantageous. You don't have to do sophisticated yes. conditional mutations or anything in diploids. You just knock it out and keep it balanced in a heterozygous stock. The bad thing is that you don't see any yeah. you don't see a phenotype unless you get the homozygotes. And so to look at maternal effect mutations is just a feature of the genetics. If you're right, the other thing about flies is they mate and you um, so to can to control the genetics, each generation you have to collect virgin females and males and do crosses. Mm -hmm. So if you were thinking of doing a, 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 a mutagenesis screen with setting up 40,000 individual lines, and you had to go through each line and collect the, the females, and you have to collect the yeah. males, and you have to do the cross, you put them in the next file, and then you go into vial number two, and you have 40,000. And you have to do it in flies breeding every 
right. two, and you have to go through three generations of doing this. It didn't seem like it, the reason nobody had ever done it wasn't that that we were smarter. It was, it was just that it seemed like it was so much work. And so the first couple of years that we were in Heidelberg, what we did was try, we had to figure out selective screens that would, in each, we could put two flies in uh -huh. a tube at the beginning and then have some type of selective screen that would kill off all the flies we didn't want so only males and females of the right generation would emerge the next you know the, uh -huh. the next generation and now and actually to do maternal effect means you have to use selection to establish the lines and selection to isolate the homozygotes you required a sequence of two selective steps yeah. in two two distinct selective sex like alcohol sensitivity and temperature or thing and so we spent the first two years trying to identify a sequence of selective steps that would allow us to look for maternal effects. And we failed. We couldn't, f nothing we did worked. And so we ended up with, uh, we ended up with selective screens that we worked in one generation, but we could never pile on another one. So if you're doing one generation, what you end up with is a balanced stock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually where the opportunism, this is where our distinction, the distinction between Yanni was committed to wanting to do figure out a the second step, yeah. and when it was clear that it wasn't going to happen, I believed that well, if we can't look for maternal effect mutations, let's look for zygotically active transcribed genes. They're going to show up, and we can yep. do that screen in one generation. one generation. They are probably interesting too, and. It but Sagan, so it's zygotically, wait a minute, yeah. zygotically transcribed genes. So yeah. these are going to be... They're going to be, uh, if you can establish the, in one selective protocol a stock that's now heterozygous, uniformly heterozygous for some mutagenized mm -hmm. chromosome, then if you just collect embryos from those heterozygous males and females, one quarter of the embryos are going to be missing that gene. Yes. If that gene is not a maternal gene that's supplied maternal. If it's a gene that has to be transcribed in the embryo itself... To make the embryo develop. To make right? the embryo develop. Right. To make then it from each of these stocks, one quarter mm -hmm. of the embryos are going to die. And they may, you know, a lot of them are going to die and they're not going to be... But if they're interesting things that happen that depend on specific transcriptional steps in the embryo, then by collecting all of the transcriptionally active genes in mm -hmm. the embryo, what you do is collect, uh, you get mutations in every step which is defined by a requirement for mm -hmm. transcription. And so that seemed to me, that wasn't really what we wanted to do, but it was something we could do, and mm -hmm. it was cool. And we kind of went back and forth, but then kind of quickly decided that, yeah, okay, might as well be opportunistic rather than idealistic mm -hmm. here. Let's settle for doing the looking for zygotic lethals, and that's the screen. That's okay, the so then the you mutage. Yeah, that's the Heidelberger. So you mutagenize them, and then now you don't have to separate the the. I mean, you just look for yeah. guys that have quarter of them look goofy, yeah, right? right exactly. And interestingly goofy. Yeah. Okay, and so then what did you get? Right. So then what happens is um, we set up lots of lines. Still, uh, we didn't set. We had planned that we tried to set up about forty thousand. And the way attrition works 
Yeah. In these screens, we ended up with about 27,000 lines. Um, and we, most of them, we, had a, we gave these guys enough EMS that most of them had a, an a average of a, a lethal someplace, or there's some 18,000 of them had lethals in, on the particular chromosomes we were following. And then we would collect embryos. What uh, I think we were lucky. Uh, you could imagine that nature was kind to us. You could imagine that every gene in the embryo was required to make it a had fly. To be transcribed. Yeah. And every one of these eighteen thousand lines would give, you know, embryos. We would, <laughs> but what worked out well was that almost, you know, 80, 70, 80 percent of the lines, everything hatched and crawled. Even though they're going to die at some point in the yeah. cy- life cycle, they hatched and crawled away because you didn't need that gene in the Until embryo. Until later, yeah. Either the mother supplied enough mm-hmm. of it or you just... And then even the ones that died as embryos, when we looked at them, we couldn't tell the homozygous mutants from the random dead mm-hmm. embryo on the, uh, on the plate. And so... While these genes might have been really interesting, they didn't seem, well, they would be hard to analyze. Yeah. Because that's that's the opportunistic thing. And maybe you would say that they didn't have major effects on body parts. Well, yeah, so you go for the... Yeah, you go for the cool ones. The the ones, yeah. yeah. So then how many did you end up with that were interesting? So we had... We finally ended up with 580, 513, 586, something like that. And then we assigned them to 139 complementation groups. And, and we have multiple hits in almost Many, all, yeah. of those, uh-huh. gee, all of those. And so it looked like if we had gone back and done another 30,000 lines, we would have gotten maybe a couple of new genes, but mostly what we would have gotten is more alleles in the same genes mm-hmm. we had. So we argued, and I think to a certain extent we kind of believe that we had saturated the genome. And then, and I want to tell, so the, what you're looking for, you're looking for these embryos that, that have funny patterns yeah. right, in them, right? Yeah. Funny shapes patterns and patterns, shapes, shapes anything, right? Yeah. And then, but your belief, right, yeah. is that you're finding the genes that make the body plan somehow, yes. right? Or control the making yeah. of the body plan, right? Yeah. Right. And, yeah. Okay. And so then how many genes was it? You got 100 groups and then... 100. So if we looked at them, what we did is then immediately published one subset, which is about 20 genes that was involved in setting up anterior-posterior pattern and segmentation. That was something that everyone was aware of had to happen. Uh, And it was the sequence and the the different phenotypes you could group these 20-some-odd genes into classes and into a a hierarchy that, that made both biological sense and that uh, uh, seemed to um, confirm what the genetics was telling us about the... the, the and so those 20 genes, and, and they were interesting enough that it became clear that if you go back and you say, well, that's anterior, posterior, or segment uh-huh. number or patterning, but many other things happen in the embryo. There's mesoderm, there's gastrulation, there's the establishment of neural identity. You could go back 
through this collection of 139 genes mm-hmm. and come up with the seven or eight yeah, for that, this thing in this se- uh-huh. this particular process, or the ones that were specifically involved in forming ventral furrow, or uh, or ones that, uh, and then of course, so that meant there were about half of them. With our insights and our interest, we could make interesting. We could right. group in, and then there were other ones that we couldn't see an interesting story about. That the embryonic phenotype was distinct, the embryo yeah. would grow up, and then at some point, yeah. and all the cells would just separate from each other, and the embryo would fall apart. And we didn't know what to do with those those genes. We, we, we kept them, we mapped them, we thought about them. As it, is, it turns out, I mean, no genes are uninteresting. And so those genes, which we call things like bazooka, or shotgun, turn out to be the e-cadherin, or um, the, the, the polarity proteins mm-hmm. that control apical basal polarity now, or another phenotype that was hard for us to work with was a process called dorsal closure, because the embryo has a big hole on the dorsal mm-hmm. side, and there's a huge set of interesting biological processes. So I think that we, or the screen, benefited a great deal. Once we had the mutants and we gave them out and we published them and we gave them up before we published them. We just got it, tried to get people to work on parts of it. And then everybody who worked on them found interesting things. So that's good. That's nice. So they, they're a lot of what we know now about biology. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want to talk about. So now, hang on a second. So you guys take these top 20 that you think you can make sense. I don't mean top 20. You pick your favorite yeah. 20 yeah. based on you, your hopefulness, I guess, that yeah. you're going to be able to make some sense out of those because right. they were, sorry, Eric, yeah. easier. easier. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Okay, and so now you do. So tell us a couple of names because some of them are famous. Okay, so, so things like... Uh, Wint. Wints and the Hedgehog. So there was a set of things. I, for reasons that I... Um, I got. I had a particular responsibility for the X chromosome, and so I had to make sure that all of my genes made it big. Mm-hmm. And on the X chromosome was a gene called that we called armadillo, because it made, all the embryos made, ended up looking like mm-hmm. little armadillos. We thought, I, 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 you know, I've often said, I, I don't know how I could have thought that. I had never seen, seen an, an armadillo, armadillo <laughs> but you know, they kind of looked like I imagined armadillos would look like, and so we called the gene armadillo. The armadillo. Um, it became clear though that. Armadillo phenotype was very similar to another gene that the fly biologists had called wingless, which is the Wnt homolog. Mm-hmm. And armadillo um, it was pretty quickly through sets of genetic experiments. Actually, once we were here in Princeton, you, we could begin to link armadillo to uh, um, to Wnt signaling, and then cloned identified armadillo, um, and it was still armadillo, and then. Uh, vertebrate biologists had been working or identified a gene which was called beta-catenin, which associated with cadherins, and no one had really associated that with signaling before, and yet um, they were homologs, and beta-catenin and armadillo are the same gene effectively, and it became clear that beta-catenin in vertebrates played a very major signaling role in, in, in what was called wind signaling, and so, and then it was possible to position more other genes in this pathway by doing different kinds of genetics. Uh, beta-catenin in our armadillo 
is in many respects the central player right. in that pathway. Right, and so I want to be really clear yeah. there. But what you found, right, so the fly uses yeah. Genes. gene, these, this gene, armadillo, to make this body plan. And then animal with mm -hmm. vertebrate, vertebrate animal, they find the same genes make their body plan, right? Mm -hmm. That's why the screen is important, right? Is right. that why I mean, the screen well, is important? I, I, why is it important? No, you, right, you can say the screen's important because until, I mean, I can take a purist view and I can say that until we did the screen, nobody had, in any animal, had a genetic picture of how genes would operate in controlling the development of an embryo. That's and a good reason. That, and that was kind of how we thought. Now, you know, back then we say, yeah, everything's the same, but, you know, kind of. But it was, uh, uh, doing fly embryos was more like looking for principles rather than looking, no one really thought that we were looking for something practical like No, but, 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 but wait, but hang on, but you get the same, you got yeah. both that, you got the principles, right. but and you also got that the same genes get used over yeah. and over all through, all right. through, So right? I'm saying that we and hoped for the first, the generality, because we didn't anticipate what's a central feature of evolution, mm -hmm. that I don't know what, I, I, in retrospect, you can always say, well, obviously, yeah. well, what's going to happen yes, when you right. have, when some animal, some multicellular animal has embryos that figures out how to make mesoderm, well, what is it, you know, is it going to reinvent a gene every time it speciates? No. Right. So he's going to, so in retrospect, we know now that signaling pathways are conserved, molecules are conserved, and they're conserved sufficiently at the amino acid level that you can recognize mm -hmm. a human homologue of a fly gene. We certainly didn't know that or anticipate that when we did the screen. We did the screen at a time where people were just beginning to imagine that they could clone genes based on genetic localization. Mm -hmm. And one of the exciting things, four or five years after we completed the screen, with the cloning of fly genes and the ability to sequence efficiently genes, this is now like yeah. mid-80s, 85 or so, was the realization that when you got a sequence and you translated that sequence, it could be a sequence mm -hmm. that you'd seen before. Right. And that took about two years for people to realize that that was going to be the case. And then there was an incredible effort to a realization that having sequence yeah. was the key in to understand right. function right. biology. Right. And so then virtually all of the fly genes, the 139 from the screen, were cloned and they were, uh, people used them as probes for vertebrate genes. People cloned vertebrate genes for other reasons and found and that, found yes, that, yeah. mm -hmm. they were represented in flies and therefore the functional analysis. Right, gives you ins immediate insight into in your organism, yeah, right, and its right. function. So I have a question, maybe this happens. Do you have a favorite of those 139? What's your favorite, you know, 30 years oh, later? Gosh. I don't know. I... We had favorites. We do have favorites. I have favorites. Um, it's complicated. I, certain favorites are favorites because their phenotypes are wonderful. 
Others are favorites for some little personal thing. Yani so give me an example of each. The right. one that okay. favorite from their from their phenotypes. I think I do like. Um, oh, it's hard. Probably armadillo is still something very very affectionate based on the phenotype and everything. Uh, the many other genes are cool, but they're we were unfolded gastrulation really interesting. But armadillo is cool. Okay. Right. The reality though is that we Yanni and I had this. Sh- slides and we would both sit at a microscope and we would actually work in the afternoon and the evening going through all the stocks preparing slides mm-hmm. making embryo you know uh, mounting dead embryos on slides and then we would pr- the slides would uh, process over the evening and then when we came in in the morning we would sit and uh, examine them. Mm-hmm. And we had a dual microscope, so just like you and me are looking yeah. at each other and, and just like we're equally competitive. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, Yanni and I would sit there with the slide and we put the slide on from some dead embryo stock and we both look into the scope and try to decide whether it was a mutant or whether it was garbage. Uh-huh. And you realize that 80-90% is all garbage. And, and, and you have hundreds of slides you have to look through. And so your tendency is to kind of rapidly, you know, go through yeah. this. and Right, be an assembly and line. And yet you also want to be the person who, who finds f- the good one, right. Who finds the good one, especially if the other person didn't. Right. And <sighs> so, okay. Yeah, and so we both, I think. Won at that at different times, right? We, we both won in our, some of our biases. Oh, because you found it we under found the it, microscope. Yeah. And so it really, then you become committed to a gene. <laughs> that's a really good, to the young people, that's a really good <laughs> strategy. Like, okay. you know, if you found a gene and she didn't, then it becomes even, even more, better. Right, got if it. you can make it so that that gene is really, They're really, really important. interesting got and it. important. Okay, yeah. so that's, okay. You know, that makes sense. I mean, science is cool to do. Yeah. And okay, that's actually what I want to talk about now. If I may, it, well, you get yeah. to. So, what's your? Um, what is it that you are the most proud of? The most proud, not what you like to do the most. What are you most proud of? I tell you, it's a hard question because I'm self-delusional and poly- in a Pollyanna, and so every morning when I go into the lab, I tell myself. This, I'm going to do something really great today. I think something wonderful will something happen today. Wonderful. Let and this be a really yeah, good and day. And I, I do some, and I get some recombinant. And it was hard to get, and I am so proud. That's fine. So you get to be proud of the day. So then what is, okay, so, so along that line, what's the best thing about doing science? The thing you like the most? I like um, that I know how to do it. I can go into the lab and with a certain low but reliable frequency, I can discover something that nobody knows. And I, I'm good enough, and I work hard enough, and I understand opportunity and chance and, and recognize things that happen. As this is a place where I can do something here, and I can, uh, and I, it can be small, or it can be big. But the thing that's wonderful about science, and often you don't know whether it's small or big, but the thing that's wonderful is that you can, I can do it, and 
90% of the time it's hard and the way I was trying to do it doesn't work and I have to go back and try a different or I have to set it up again or I mess things up. But I know that with a significant reproducible frequency, I will be successful. I will go into the lab and I will have something that's mine. And that no one ever thought about before you. No one ever thought about it before. And, I mean, I, I'm not so... I don't actually believe that in the long run it remains mine. I, and, and certain things you can have or make, you, you have to, as a scientist, you have to buy into the part that you're in a community, and it just becomes kind of the general common knowledge. But so I, it's not that like I'm an artist and my name will always mm-hmm. be on a picture that you go to the, the Louvre and uh, 200, 300 years later there's going to be some picture and <laughs> this is by Benoit or someone. But um, this, the thing is that I know I can do stuff and it contributes to this whole that's going to live forever. This whole of human knowledge, this the entirety of human knowledge. And I put my little, I, I get the pleasure of doing it and figuring it yeah. out. And, and it's mine for that brief period of time until you publish. And then it kind of sinks in, in some way, as being important or unimportant. Other people make yeah. it important or mm-hmm. unimportant. It becomes part of this bigger body of knowledge. And so in a way, it does exist forever. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not associated uh, with me or anything, it's that as a scientist, I can do stuff lasts mm-hmm. forever. It's your legacy. Yeah. And so then you said something, Eric, about this, this thing, which I think is an interesting sort of morass that scientists live in, which is sometimes it's big and sometimes it's small. And then actually the community after you makes it so. It, yeah. Big or small does not happen the day you did it. No, I mean, I, we, we did not clone and find right. out that fly genes were like human genes. For a long time. But, but did yeah. you know, but here's what I want When you and Yanni were doing the screen, did you know, though, it was the biggest? Did you know that? I mean, then, or is it really we, just... We knew that it was really, that it was successful. And we knew that um, it was something that people had never done before and was exciting. It was exciting enough for us to work 16 hours a day for eight months to get this mm-hmm. thing done. And... We knew it was successful because the scientists that we respected, that we knew that were our friends or that we talked to, people our age, people older than us, some of them, a fraction of them, whom we respected, thought it was cool, too. Yeah, so, that's, so that gives a context for yeah, younger, right. yeah, for so you we, as a young yeah, scientist, right? So right? we felt, we knew, I, I can't say that we knew that it was the best thing that we'd ever done or that we were doing, or I can't say that we knew that it was going to have an impact yeah. in, in, in the kind like of impact. An, like in animal, in, in animal, horses in, or in, in people, or right? in people or clinical impact. I certainly, none of us ever thought that it would lead to a Nobel Prize or anything like that. Because Nobel Prize is just such incredible. Yeah, it's all silly. But we knew that this was a really good that's good. It's so that's early. interesting. Okay. So that's good. That's nice, right? Because th- yeah. you're on the hor- that the horizon was you were at the edge there, yeah. right? And, and it was, yeah. What you want as a scientist is not to win a prize or, or, or even 
to be really famous. What you want is to do something in science that's good enough that other scientists want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And that they that you can tell them what you've done and and that they appreciate it. Or that, that you can be you want to do something that's good enough that you can be part of the club. Mm-hmm. Right. You want to be part of the club. And that's the only real real reliable award. Right. And I think that the the be the part of the club, Eric, which is a funny it's not the way I, this is your interview, it's not the way. I think what it means is that you change the way people think. That's what makes you get in the club, yeah. right? You added fundamentally to the way we think about something, yes or no? That's yeah, not and so then you're in the club. You're yeah, in the, you're in the, the club. The group of people yeah. that, you know, that, that, that change the way we think. Yeah, no, right. it's not yeah. the group of people but the, that other scientists want to talk to. Yeah. I mean, it is for me really the social aspect. I don't think I could be a scientist or maybe I could, because it's really cool to do stuff in the lab. Yeah. But there's clearly a reward of in science of being able to talk to other scientists and have and to discuss and develop ideas and see how things go. And that's go move forward. And that's clearly one of the things that matters to me is that I do things that make me a part of this community at this club. Mm-hmm. Not just that I do things that bring thing, move things forward. It's yeah. pretty good. So I want to um, spend a few minutes now, like for in the off chance that a young person is watching, what's your best piece of advice to a young scientist? Oh, gosh. I actually think, um, you know, obviously find something that's interesting, um, Try to identify people who can help you, that you can talk to, who can help you develop your ideas. I think one of the best pieces of advice is to finish experiments. It's an odd kind of thing, (laughs) but I think um, you... It's... The, the pleasure, the thing that keeps you being a scientist is this, for me at least, was to see uh, finishing an experiment. And then you, when you finish it, even if you think it's going down the tubes, but finish it and get the analysis, you know, that you understand and you learn stuff. Sometimes you learn unanticipated things. Sometimes you learn, well, at least how to do that experiment better the next round. I think that, as particularly for young graduate students, is often there's this idealistic vision of what it is to do science and a tendency to do the experiment and when it's not working, throw it to out it the next and year. start all over again or, or try a different approach. Or start. And this idea that science requires work, so you have to work hard, would be the other part of the other half of this, you have to work hard, you have to put in the hours and you have to finish things. Finishing things and then looking at them when they're finished mm-hmm. and saying, "Is this a nice p- painting? Is this a good yeah. thing? Is this, you know, I- if you always stay in the realm of sketches or doodles or, or whatever, you never, you really have to make the commitment to do the painting at some point, to <laughs> have it, to get it to the end." if you want to know whether what you've done is valuable or not. So I think that, that thing of, of finishing 
experience. And then what I would also say, so then also often young people, they say, but, you know, how do you know what idea to do? How do you get your idea? You know, where do ideas come from? How do you know what uh, the next thing is to do? So yeah. is there... I think, um, I think it actually helps to know biology, <laughs> to know, to observe biology, to look for the things that you don't understand, uh, to be curious enough to want to understand those things. That's a really good sign that something's mm -hmm. worth it. If people are talking about something and you look at it and you really don't understand <laughs> or this doesn't really make, a, it's descriptively correct, but it doesn't make mechanistic sense, that's an interesting thing to do. It's, I, I think there are people who can have a, a, a driving passion to solve some problem, and I'm not really that kind of person. I'm a more curious, I see this thing, I don't really know whether it's interesting, but I know that everybody, we have some kind of assumption, and I could do this experiment and test, test it. to see whether that's, yeah, and so that's good advice. I think to to try, you know, to build on biology, um, have this store of knowledge where you see, you're always saying, does this really make sense? Can I put these two pieces mm -hmm. of biology together? Right? Yeah, that's still a richness for me that I benefited from. A lot of times ideas resurface. Mm -hmm. 10 yeah. years, 20 years. Right, and you have more Yeah, to and they put become richer. Even though they're an idea that I had when I was young and wasn't approachable, the idea comes back, and it maybe isn't quite the same idea mm -hmm. anymore, but it's also approachable. You're also not the same person anymore, either. No, yeah. I hope not. Yeah, <laughs> so do we all. <laughs> and I'm, so then, so what is it, so, so I would just say that I think that the two phenotypes, you know, you're just this sort of, no offense, scattered, curious person versus the person who's drive, driving yeah. to answer a question. I think both of those work yeah. in science in different ways, right? But then... Give it. What is it that you want to do now? Like, what's the question that's driving you wild now? Okay, the things that I like, I'm very visually oriented, and so this has always been something that I've wanted, was to understand how things that I see happen. And so I'm really interested in what you could think of as morphological change in, in development. And in animal development, where you don't have cell walls, where you don't build a structure but you kind of transform through physical forces on a cell a change. Mm -hmm. And we can all cartoon in our mind maybe how this could happen. So this is a perfect example of what I was saying before. Mm -hmm. that you have a, a biological observation, a certain intuition, and yet you have questions that does it really, or how does one understand this? And so a lot of what we're doing right now in the lab is this attempt to take the cartoon understanding of cell shape or movement or any of these processing morphological change and test the cartoon by developing ways to m measure stuff, mm -hmm. see stuff accurately. It's basically what measuring is and actually maybe even putting a number on things and then trying to have you know, trying, well, honestly, working with people who have sufficient math and physics skills to put those numbers in and those measurements into a context. I think I I would not be able to do research that I didn't believe at some level I understood. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I, I'm not someone who can just fill in little parts of a puzzle and then pass the results on to somebody else. So I have to play in the bigger, the bigger picture. But realistically, how much of my physics do I really know? I can stand up in front of an audience and talk about <laughs> Stokes' fl- cytoplasmic flows, but could I really do that? I kind of understand things, and I think it's another good thing for scientists to know is what their, what their level of kind of understanding mm-hmm. something is. How deeply on any particular thing do you have to, uh, do, you, do you personally have to understand this? And we and we compromise with ourselves all the time. And in terms of, yeah, this is enough yeah. for me, partially because there's so much. And if you want to do the big problem, you are going to come to edges where your knowledge, where you don't have the knowledge. And to get beyond that point, you have to invest significantly. And if you invest significantly, it means that you won't be doing this or this or that. And so, at some level, we all, in our activity as a scientist, kind of balance Mm -hmm. uh, our ignorance uh, here with our ignorance here with our ignorance here and try to find a way that we maintain productivity. I don't believe that there's ever anything that you... Well, maybe. Uh, I was, I was going to say that. Ever anything that you really absolutely need to know. And, any, and that's, that's a little bit too, too broad. Too, too, but most often, the edges of our knowledge don't have some absolute mm-hmm. moral imperative that we have to pursue that edge versus this mm-hmm. edge or that edge. And, and so again, it's kind of opportunistic and also very personal choice of if I want to push this project forward, what do I need to know? Mm-hmm. What? How much do I need to know to be a player? I have two more questions, if uh, I may. The first one is, um, if you were going to start, so we know you love flies, right? We know you've devoted your life, right? And so no offense, but you're a little stuck, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But now, right, it's 2013. It's a different world mm-hmm. than when you went, yeah. left Alabama, right? right? If you were going to, become a scientist today, you know, and you were 20 years old again, what would you, what, I, what is the thing you wish you could study, but we're not, you're just not going to be able to do know. it? Yeah, it's really hard. I think I would always like Say to microbiology. No, right, go ahead. Actually, uh, <laughs> actually I, I'm very fascinated with bacteria. <laughs> Come on. All right, be honest. There's yeah. something called quorum sensing Stop. that I think is... Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. No, but I think, I think you would always want to work on a real animal. I would always want to work on something that it has real development. That has real development or a real, real phenomenology. I, I want to have. I want to have a rich phenomenon. One of the the things that's wonderful about flies, and it's very apparent when you go to the fly meeting. Is there are people who do neurobiology in flies, and there are people who do secretion in flies, and there are people who do uh, uh, pattern formation, mm-hmm. and there are people who do uh, population genetics, and there. You know, so the Phenomena is rich yeah. in real organisms. That's true for C. elegans. That's true for all of our model organisms. That the richness of the organism is something that would drive me because I want to go into an organ. I want to go into a system and have it trigger questions in my mind, mm-hmm. and then I want that to have all the skills. I want. I want it to have all of the tools. Yeah. I. 
I, I admire people who break out of the standard model organisms and, and choose to develop a new uh, a new organism as, a, as an experimental system. And I think that's absolutely necessary because everything gets distorted when you only see it yeah. through the eyes of flies or worms. But for me, I profit so much from the fact that so many really smart people are working on flies and doing so many different things and making so many tools and there's cells there and they do these things and we don't know this for any 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 organism how cells shift their positions relative to each other and so we can do, do that's anything you look at you see and we can do that and, and so I'm kind of driven by the attractive and really by the attractiveness of an established mm-hmm. an, an model established system. model system because I know, because I like little successes. Okay, and so then, so let's talk, and this doesn't have to be science-specific. It could be, so what are the things, so you already told us you work 16 hours a day. I think I know you, and you still do a lot of that. What did you give up to do this? What, like, regrets, like, things that you never got to do? It's, uh, they could be science, or they could be otherwise. Yeah. Um, I think there was a, I... I might have, I, when I was young, I used to paint. I used to play music much more than I do now. I stopped in part because I realized that I wasn't very good and that I wanted, if I was going to be better, I would have to invest. I didn't have, I didn't have the time mm-hmm. to invest. So you give up certain things. Um, I started painting again, and that's cool. And so I'm, I'm actually, I think I can be good. But I, um, I don't, I love being in the land. I have a family. In a certain sense, having lab and having family, I don't have time for anything else. But you don't regret it that much, do no, you? I don't regret right. it. So that's the weird thing, that two things that are really rich in your life. How do you, I mean, what, what really, more, what more, you know, how much more do you need? You know, you have, like, you get to go into the lab every day, and then you get to, you know, this kind of family thing where you're all these people around who <laughs> you didn't necessarily choose, but there they are, and they're your kids, and, and they have these wonderful, fascinating personalities, and you get to be, you know, Again, in a part of a family, and, and be s- significant in that way, and you get to have, um, you get to go to the lab. Um, I don't read books very much. That would be a good thing to do. I just don't have time. I go to the lab, and I cook food for my family. I don't know. Yeah, sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, it's okay. Eric Richard, thank you very much for letting us talk to you on TV. It was really fun. Thanks a million. It's fun for me. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquet Paz. Thanks for listening.